0: Some of the most gut-wrenching experiences of my life, some of the most difficult experiences of my life have been the few times that I've had to be a part of interventions with people that I love. I know that some of you have also been a part of experiences like that. And what you know makes those so difficult is because in an intervention you are compelled by a love that is so intense. A love that is so true that it compels you to say things that are devastating to someone. To say things that you know are going to bring pain, That you know are going to bring division potentially. That could even bring uh, harm to the way that person sees you. And could bring permanent fracture to your relationship with them. And so to come to the point of an intervention. Is to come to the place in which you have to say. That I am going to love you. Enough to say things that are going to devastate you, and I am going to love you enough to say them to you, even if it means that this is going to be the end of our relationship, even if it means that it is going to bring harm to me, even if it means that this is going to be the point in which you stop loving me back, even if it means that this is the day in which we never speak again. And being in the position that I'm in, I am sometimes a mediator in these types of moments. I'm often at the, at the forefront of these types of moments. And I have been personally in these moments. They're gut-wrenching, excruciating and painful. And when we come to Matthew chapter 23, if we read it wrong, if we read the circumstance wrong, if we misinterpret it, we can read Jesus as being venomous. As being venomous. As just spewing venom. As, as someone who just says, I've just had enough. And who has just lost all patience. And has just flown off the handle and people read it that way and certainly Jesus is filled with a righteous indignation and a righteous anger because life has that place there's a reason which Ephesians 4 says be angry and do not sin we see that in Christ here as the great prophets but what we should see here is Jesus playing the part of an intervention intervention there is a brokenness in Christ. This is the place of a compassionate lamentation in the heart of a great prophet. As he goes to say things that are angry, sure, righteously angry, but where he is instead going to confront his people, going to confront the people of God to where he can say things that are devastating, saying things that are true so that they might hear the truth and repent. So that the truth might be known, so that the reality might be spoken, so that they might turn from their wickedness, so that they might turn from their brokenness and be saved and be delivered. And in fact, what we know from church history and what we know from reality is that some of them were. Some of them were. So turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 23 of Matthew. To see this intervention moment, the the climax as we come out of chapter 22, as we are barreling in now toward the cross. Barreling in now the cross. So when you get to chapter 23, if you would stand with me, as we prepare to read God's word together. We're going to read the first 12 verses together. We'll cover chapter 23 in just two weeks. Matthew chapter 23, we'll read the first 12 verses. God's word says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their, fl- their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and their best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So in chapter 22, if you'll remember where we've been the last couple of weeks and months, we saw these these four questions brought to Jesus in which the leaders of Israel were trying to turn the crowds of Israel against Jesus because they have murderous anger in their hearts against Jesus. They're jealous of Jesus and they have hatred toward Jesus and so they need the crowds against Jesus because they don't want the crowds to turn against them. The crowds very much love Jesus and Jesus is a very popular man in Israel. He has come into Israel with great pomp and circumstance to Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so they don't want the crowds to turn against them. And so they're trying to turn the crowd against Jesus so they can kind of vote Jesus off the island. And so they've tried to use all of these different riddles and techniques and challenges to Jesus some to humiliate Jesus some to kind of divide the crowd some to kind of kind of make tie Jesus up in these like philosophical knots and theological knots and all these different things and yet Jesus has stomped them all all of them In fact, Jesus has proven to be so brilliant theologically, so brilliant intellectually, so brilliant rationally and logically that by the end of chapter 22, Jesus is the one asking all of the questions. And by the end of 22, it says that they could not answer him a word and that they dare not ask him any more questions. That by the end of chapter 22, all of the leaders of Israel are like, yo, we got to back down and come up with a new strategy. We got to have a different plan. And in fact, throughout the rest of the gospels, they do not ask him another question. Because what they discovered was, is that the more questions they asked Jesus, the more the crowd supported Jesus. Because all their questions did was prove more and more that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And Jesus was in fact their moral and theological superior. And so as we come into chapter 23... Jesus has now turned away from the leaders of Israel, and he's still in the temple complex on Tuesday of Passion Week. And now he is looking to his disciples primarily, and there is a crowd of onlookers gathered around by this point, and probably throughout, um, gathered around his disciples, and he begins to, to apply and interpret all that has, has went on. And he's just Begins to deliver this lamentation, this explanation of all that has happened. And Jesus, being the great prophet, delivers a prophecy of judgment in Matthew chapter 23. A prophecy of judgment, a damnable prophecy of judgment that will bring damnation upon the leaders of Israel. And in fact, Israel at large, which we will see carried forward, not just in 23, but through 24 and 25 as well. And so as he begins to, to talk though, he starts in a way that is extraordinary. He starts in a way that frankly catches me off guard and will probably catch all of us off guard. You see what he says here? He says that in, in verse two here, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees Sit on Moses' seat. Now, listen to this, y'all. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, think about what they've been saying, all right? They have been undermining Jesus the whole way, the whole way. Now, what was the primary charge that they've had against us? If you think back a couple of weeks to what we talked about in the great commandment, the primary charge that they've had against Jesus has been a theological one that Jesus is a blasphemer right that, that Jesus equates himself with God that Jesus is undoing uh, uh, the, the law of Moses right that Jesus even addressed this in the in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is abolishing the law of Moses and that that's really what he's seeking to address and when he uh, when he gives us those two great commandments that he, I did not come to abolish the law, but that I've come to fulfill the law. In fact, Jesus was the law incarnate. Jesus was the word incarnate. And so he, here he is explaining this and demonstrating this in just remarkable, remarkable extent. Because here's what he tells his disciples. These men, these leaders of Israel, these Pharisees and scribes, they now sit in a delegated seat. They now sit in the lineage of Moses that they have been given the authority that God had originally given to Moses. And now they follow in the ancestry of Moses, Moses, in the lineage of Moses and following in the lineage of Moses, they now carry the authority of Moses and carrying the authority of Moses, they teach the law of Moses. And as they teach the law of Moses, you should listen to them and you should observe the things that they say. You should listen to them, teach the law of Moses. And as often as they teach the law of Moses, you should listen to the law of Moses and you should observe the law of Moses. You should listen to them teach, apply their teaching to your life and live it out. Yo, all right. Now maybe you ain't getting this, but that's crazy, all right. That's crazy. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay. All they've done for weeks, months, at least a year is try to undermine Jesus' credibility as a teacher. That's all they've done. They've tried to humiliate Jesus as a teacher. They've tried to show Jesus as a false prophet and a false teacher. They've tried to show that Jesus is an uneducated fool. They've tried to show that Jesus is not one worth listening to. Now they're showing that Jesus should be arrested and executed. They've showed that Jesus is a blasphemer. Like Again and again, what they have worked to do is undermine Jesus as a teacher, undermine Jesus' authority, undermine Jesus' credibility. And Jesus is standing here. And Jesus has just publicly, clearly,
1: thoroughly
0: outsmarted them, outwitted them, humiliated them theologically, intellectually, rationally, publicly, and what does Jesus do with that platform? Now, let me tell you what I would do. Let me tell you what Cody would do. Cody would rest on his laurels. I would collect my honorary doctorates. I would hang them all on the wall. I would put it on the sign. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it would all be cool. I would sit there. I would say, yeah, bring on, bring on more of your lawyers, right? Like, like, bring on more of your scribes, bring on more of your scholars. Like, the more you bring, the more I'm gonna knock down, baby. Keep on bringing them on. What does Jesus do? He says, you should listen to them as they teach God's word. Those are God's men. God has given them those seats. God has given those, them those positions of authority. Those are delegated seats. Those are not their seats. That that is God's law that they teach. He's not talking about their additions to God's law. He's not talking about their corruptions of God's law. He's only talking about that as, as far as they teach God's law. You should listen to them. Do you see this? So what Matthew is doing brilliantly is he is taking the character of the Pharisees and the character of Jesus and he is putting them side by side for us to see. You can see the ostentation and the bitterness and the meanness and the backbiting and the undermining of the Pharisees. And you can see the humility and the wisdom and the mercy and the submission and the, and the honor and the integrity and the servanthood, even now the self-denial of the savior. You see, Jesus is not one who says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first to us and then personally doesn't live it out. Do you see this? Now he's not highlighting it about himself. He's not saying, hey, I'm gonna, this is why I'm doing this and then doing it. He's just doing it. He's just living it out. Jesus is not one who says that you should turn the other cheek and then himself sits in the background and watches you do it. Jesus is not one who says that you should pray for your enemies and then sits from afar and watches you pray for your enemies. Jesus is not one who says that if your enemy tells you that you should carry his armor a mile, that you should instead invite yourself to carry it two miles and then watches you from a throne of heaven do it No, the Bible says in Hebrews that he knows in every single way, the ways that you have been tempted himself personally, personally. And we see this firsthand, don't we? We see this firsthand. And so as Matthew is writing to his Jewish audience, here's what he's saying. Which one do you want to follow? Which one do you want to choose? Do you want to choose your leaders? Do you want to choose your Pharisees? Do you want to choose the the ones that you've been following all of these years that have led us into exile and led us astray and led us away from God? Do you want to follow the ones that make sense to you in your minds or do you want to follow your humble Messiah? Do you want to follow your humble Messiah because his humility was their hang-up. His humility was their hang-up. But what we see about Christ, what we see about Christ is that our Savior is no hypocrite. Rather, our Savior takes the things that He teaches to us and He lives them out in His life. Our Savior is a credible Christ, He is a credible savior. He is the one who models first for us that the one who is first on earth or who is last on earth will be first in heaven and the one who is first on earth will be last in heaven that the servant on earth is first in heaven. And so he says, they sit on the seats of Moses. So listen to them and observe what they say, but don't do what they do, Right? but don't do what they do. Don't follow after their lives. So listen to them, observe their lives, uh, observe, observe their teachings, but don't follow after their lives. Don't follow after their lives. Listen to what he says. He says, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but do not practice. They don't, They don't practice what they preach. That's in in layman's terms. Like we use that phrase a lot, don't we? We're we're used to that. Like like we've heard this in parenting, right? Like this is the the old parenting adage, like like, do as I say, not as I do. And I'm here to tell you like that's the least effective way to parent. That's the least effective way to parent. And if you wanna know the most common reason that kids leave the church, it's because of parents who say, do as I say, not as I do. And it's the least effective way to lead. It's the least effective way to lead. Do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I lead, right? Do as I say, not as I lead. But this was exactly the kind of leadership they had in Israel at the time, This was the exact kind of leadership that they had in Israel at the time. They had men who would stand and they were, they, they, Uh, fancied themselves as being people who upheld the law and people who loved the law and people who obsessed about the law and they would talk about the law and teach the law and and tell you how important the law was and in fact, they added to the law and they increased the law and that's what he says here, right? He talks about how they bury people with the law and they, 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 they burden them with the law but then what does he say about it? but they don't lift a single finger to help you lift it. The, the image that I have in my mind is the guy that, that is a slave owner and he knows all the work of the slave and he in fact adds to the work of the slave, but instead what he does is he sits in a padded chair holding a whip, telling the slave, work harder, work harder. Is that all you've got? You should do more. You should do more. You see what the, the, the leaders of Israel, they were such experts in the law that they became familiar with all the loopholes in the law. All the loopholes in the law. They, they would familiarize themselves with the law that they would memorize it all the way down to the letter. And the letter of the law became more important to them than the spirit of the law. They didn't care about the spirit of the law at all. They only cared about the letter of the law. And so they would so memorize the law that they would know exactly what it said. And so they would get it down to the very last letter. And so they would excuse themselves on technicalities. They would excuse themselves on technicalities. So an example of this would be something called Corbin. Corbin. So Corbin said that if I guaranteed my estate to the Lord, that I did not, that I wouldn't have to, it was a way of getting out of the inheritance, right? So I wouldn't have to leave my, my, my estate to my family. I wouldn't have to leave my estate to all of my descendants and give it to my, my I wouldn't have to take care of my invalid, my invalid parents and all of those kinds of things because instead I was giving my estate over to the Lord. And so what they would do, is they would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show myself as being particularly godly, and I'm going to give over my estate to God. And that way, they were allowed to live in the laps of luxury. Well, you know what they cared about their money when they were dead? Nothing, right? Nothing. And so they, they would violate the spirit of the law by living out the letter of the law and they lived in self-indulgence and they lived in in selfishness and greed now while all of their family was not cared for and all of their family uh, would be living out in just utter poverty and they would be living in total prosperity. And so they would live out, they they would create these laws like that. Isn't that what we do sometimes? Isn't that what we do sometimes? We figure out God's law. With teenagers, they would come up and they would say this, how far can I go with my boyfriend or my girlfriend without it being too far, right? How far can I go with my boyfriend or my girlfriend physically without it being too far? And what they were asking was, is like, what's the letter of the law? Like, where's the loophole? Where's the loophole? Like, like how close can I get up to the line without going on in? Right? Like like, like where is the line? And the, the, the goal of that question is not how can I love God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind? The goal is, is how can I find the loophole around the law? How can I find the loophole that will allow me to, to get as close to sin as I can and God still be cool with me. Right? And we do this kind of stuff all the time. How how can I, how can I tell a lie without it actually being a lie? Right? Like, like, how can I, how can I word the sentence in a way? Like we, we actually, we will work through the sentence in our car driving to the place, won't we? Like, like if we need to, uh, if we need to have a conversation with somebody, that it's going to be less than truthful. We'll be driving to the place where we're going to have the conversation, and we'll be playing out that sentence grammatically in our minds. And we'll be saying, okay, I could say it this way. Nope, that's a lie. Um, Okay, well, if I used this word, if I said, well, I might be, that is true. That is a truthful statement. Now, it means the exact same thing as the previous sentence, which was a lie. But I said the word might instead of the word would. And and since I used the word might instead of the word would, it's technically not a lie, even though it's the exact same sentence as the word before. And so on a technicality, on a loophole, that sentence is not a lie, even though the previous sentence was a lie, right? And why do we do that? because we have a little Pharisee living in us. We have a little Pharisee living in us. And because in our hearts, there is a desire to skate and a desire to slide by more than a desire to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. But what Jesus is saying here. As he is telling his disciples and he is telling the onlooking crowd, the goal here, the goal here is to not be like them. Not be like them. Listen to them. Apply what they are saying, but don't live like them. You see, in the discipleship community that Jesus was building, there would be no tolerance for a professing Christian but a not practicing one. There would be no tolerance for a professing Christian, but a non-practicing one. See, professing but non-practicing Christians are a modern invention, brothers and sisters. That's a new thing. That's not reality. That is not New Testament Christianity. You can read your Bible cover to cover. You can read from Matthew to Revelation. You can read the entirety of what Jesus has said. You can read the entirety of what the apostles have written, and you will not find it anywhere. You will not find it. There is not a loophole, there is not an escape clause. To be a Christian is to follow after Jesus and to follow after Jesus is to go where Jesus is going for Jesus' glory, by Jesus' strength, for Jesus' grace, to do Jesus' mission. It is to be one of Jesus' disciples. There is no other definition but that one. And to be like Jesus, to follow after Jesus, is to have an internal passion for the things of God, to have an internal love for God. And when you have an internal love for God, you will externally live like it. You will externally live like it. You see, the issue for the Pharisees was that their religion had no integrity, their religion had no integrity. On the outside, it was filled with pomp and circumstance. On the outside, their phylacteries were broad and their fringes were long. On the outside, it was impressive. On the outside, there were scriptures written everywhere and the prayer tassels were long and impressive. On the outside, their Facebook was struck with with Bible verses. On the outside, their hands were raised to heaven and their prayers were spiritualized. On the outside, their songs were sang louder than everybody else at church. On the outside, their car had a Jesus fish and on the outside, their Bibles were well-worn. But when they got by themselves, when they got by themselves, when the lights were dimmed and no one was left to impress, their hearts were ice cold. Their hearts were ice cold and there was nothing left but a mirror and loopholes. You see, Jesus was different. Jesus was different He didn't profess and not practice. There was a harmonization. There was credibility. There was integrity. There was synchronization between the two. Never out of alignment was the internal and the external. There was always internal passion for God and external love of man because they were always synchronized. And that's who he has called us to be, professing and practicing, loving and living, going together. Now, will we always be that way? Will we always be perfect as Christ was perfect? Will we always be perfectly internally and externally aligned? No, no. That's why we need the strength of Christ for the glory of Christ. That's why we need the church of Christ for the glory of Christ. That's why we need those two realities in our lives. And brothers and sisters, that's why we need the grace of Jesus Christ. But can I tell you something? When those things are out of alignment, you know what you will find? You can't rest there. You can't rest there. You can't be okay there. You can't be comfortable there. You will find yourself compelled to Christian repentance, compelled to Christian repentance, compelled to Christian brokenness because you cannot be a Christian filled with the divine presence of the Holy Spirit, filled with a passionate love for God and all things God, filled with a compulsion to love man and the church and all the things that God has called you to love and be out of sync and be okay with it and be okay with it. No, you will be called again and again and again back to the definition of New Testament Christianity, back to repentance again and again, and you will be called there and met with the grace of Jesus Christ, met with the encouragement of the New Testament church, met, met there with the conviction of God's holy word to build you up yet again and to encourage you back. So don't copy the Pharisees. Copy Christ. Christ. Copy Christ. Don't observe and copy them. Copy Christ. Observe and copy the credible Christ, the one who is aligned internally and externally. Copy Christ. You see, when the Pharisees, what we find is that they were slaves. Slaves to the judgments of men. Slaves to the judgments of men. See, this is the essence of being a Pharisee. Do you, see what, do you hear what he says about them? I bet this will ring true for many of us. It rang true for me. Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. You ever felt that way? So in other words, do you hear this? Their godliness had no point unless someone was watching. Their godly, their form of godliness, I mean, had no point unless somebody else was watching them. It had no point unless somebody else saw it. So the law meant nothing to them. Their version of observing the law meant nothing to them unless somebody was there to see them do it. And that's why they went and prayed on the street corners They didn't pray in private. They only prayed when there was somebody there to see it. They weren't godly when they were by themselves. They were only godly when there was somebody there to see it. They didn't praise God when they were by themselves. They only praised God when there was somebody there to see it. That's why uh, Robert McShane, he said, there is no place where... Hypocrisy is more prevalent than at home. That is where the hypocrite can't remain a hypocrite. Because it's in public when the lights come on that our language material, spiritualizes. And we sit up straight and we clean up our speech. When we come into the church, that's when all of a sudden we've got to put on our Christian face and we've got to put on our Christian clothes and put on our Christian mask. Oh, Iron City. Oh, Iron City. That is the essence of the Pharisee. That is the essence of the Pharisee. They don't find joy in being godly. They find joy in being thought of as godly. They don't find, they don't find uh, happiness in loving God. They find a happiness in others thinking and judging that they love God. Their hearts aren't exhilarated in their secret praise of God. Their hearts are exhilarated when their peers praise them for praising God. Do you see the difference? And so if you take away the judgments of others, when you take away the, others, op- the opportunities for others to see them, when you take away the opportunities for others to hear them, when you take away the opportunities for others to realize that this is a godly man or not a godly man, their praise of God will dry up. Their desire for God will dry up. Their hunger for God will dry up because their desire for God was all along a self-serving, self Centered, seeking after praise for themselves. This whole time, this whole time, they have been slaves to the judgments of men. See, this is a wretched, wretched, tainted joy, brothers and sisters. A wretched, wretched, tainted joy where I cannot be successful unless somebody else determines that I'm successful. I cannot be pious unless someone else determines that I am pious. I cannot be godly unless someone else determines that I am godly. I cannot be good unless somebody else tells me that I'm good. I cannot be a good mom or a good dad unless somebody else tells me that I'm a good mom or a good Dad. And I see at least fragments of what I see in the Pharisees in so many of us, even those of us who love the Lord. I find it true in my own heart. You see, if we live the life of a Pharisee, we live with seven and a half billion different judges in this world. We live with seven and a half billion different people that we have to make happy. We live with seven and a half billion different people that we have to impress every single day. We live with seven and a half billion different people that we have to prove to them that we love God. Seven and a half different people that we have to prove that that we walk with God and that we know God and that we have a relationship with God. And what we find is, is that for every single one of them, they have a different understanding of what godliness is. And they have a different understanding and a different value of what spiritual walk and spiritualization is. And so we have to have a different vocabulary with every single one of them. And it's exhausting, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's exhausting. And that is the glory. That is the glory of the great commandment. For the great commandment says that you have one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. that if you will love him with the totality of who you are, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and you will give him everything that you've got, day in and day out, and moment by moment, morning after moment, night after night, that it will set you free from your slavery to seven and a half billion other judges and brothers and sisters you see this commandment it is not begrudging it is not oppressive it is liberating it is liberating It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will lift a finger. In fact, I will lift it all and I will place it on my cross. I will place it on my own nail scarred hands and I will nail it to the tree on Calvary for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. You see, when you only have one judge rather than seven and a half billion other judges. And that judge says, I will supply all of the grace. I will supply all of the faith. I will supply all of the righteousness. I will supply all of the strength. I will supply all that you need. You just come to me. I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will give you the transformation. You just come to me. You see that, brothers and sisters, is freedom in Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is freedom in joy. That is a greater joy that isn't fleeting by the judgments of men. That, brothers and sisters, isn't a freedom that is of that, joy that is fleeting from day to day, morning to morning, conversation to conversation. You don't have to be a slavery to the judgments of men. You don't have to be a slavery to reactions of people. Come to Christ day and again. And this morning, some of you, you've never done that. You've lived your whole life as a Pharisee trying to be good enough, be strong enough, be wise enough. Come this morning to Christ for the first time. For some of you, you're a Christian. You're a Christian. But that little Pharisee in you, he keeps coming up, he keeps showing up. And you got to be reminded. You've already been set free from a tainted joy. You've already been set free from a tainted joy. Did you see what he says here? He says... But you are not called to be rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. You have not been, you've been called away from this stuff. You've been called away from seeking honor this way and call no man your father on earth. But for you have one father, one who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He says, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. See, they didn't love God. They loved something different. They loved their honor. They loved their ambition. They loved their self-promotion. Jesus for them, or, or God for them, was just a means to an end he was a means to their own self-promotion he was a means to their own ambition he was just a means to an end but for us for us he is an opportunity he is an opportunity for a relationship of abiding joy abiding joy Opportunity to have one father, an opportunity to have one judge, an opportunity to have one joy forever, one treasure forever. You know, Jesus here, he says that we can have true greatness. He says that's what they're, they're, they're running after. They're, they're running after honor, they're running after greatness. Daddies, do you, want, do you want your family to have greatness? I bet you do. Mamas, do you, do you want your babies? to have greatness? Young men, do you wanna find greatness? Young women, do you wanna have greatness? Empty nesters, are you still looking for significance? You're trying to figure out how you fit right now in the world? Grandmothers, you're trying to find greatness, finish with greatness? Singles, you're trying to figure out how this world fits together with you right now? Don't buy into what the world is selling. They say that if you come in, even in the Christian world, just come in, believe in Jesus, and it'll all work out somehow. That is self-centered, seeing Jesus as a means to an end. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Because you know what? You might be 28, have your soulmate, and both of you end up in an accident, end up as invalids. I can't say that won't happen. It could happen. You could end up at 32 and end up as losing, as a family of four, and one of you lose the the sole provider of the household, not have any health insurance, that could happen. You could end up at 42 as an empty nester and not have any idea how in the world you fit into this whole planet. You could be at 60 and all of your children go completely off the rails and not have any explanation as to why that happens. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end in and of himself. All of these crowns are fading. All of these robes will turn to rags on this earth. But brothers and sisters, if you want to find greatness, if you want to find greatness, walk the path of servanthood. the path of the cross run after the great commandment with all of your heart give your life to it, give your heart to it give your soul to it give your mind to it give everything that you've got to it go and love others as yourself walk the path of the cross follow after Jesus with everything that you've got and I can promise you with the authority of the Bible and Jesus Christ that those who humble themselves, those who live as servants now. One day you will be exalted with a crown of unfading glory, of gold that will never fade away, with robes that will never be eaten by moths. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't copy the Pharisees. Don't copy the Pharisees. Copy Jesus. Copy Jesus. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the end. He is everything. Let's pray together.